0: Anton Hellman here for the EM Cases Podcast. Welcome to part two of pulmonary embolism challenges in diagnosis. In part one, Eddie Lankerson-DeWitt and I discussed how missed pe is almost always a failure to consider the diagnosis in the first place rather than an erroneous workup, that we do a ton of needless CTs with their inherent problems of overdiagnosis and radiation risk, that you need to take a really good, detailed history and realize that breathlessness and fatigue are the two most common symptoms, while chest pain is only seen in about 5% of cases. And while there are dozens of PE risk factors, the really important ones that should shift your probability of PE in particular are previous thromboembolic events, recent immobilization, active cancer, estrogen use, and strong family history. We talked about how patients who present with syncope and COPD should not routinely get CTs to rule out PE, despite the Italian studies that show a high rate of PEs in these patients. We explained why you need to understand pretest probability and know the prevalence of PE in your population, that tachycardia alone should not automatically trigger the workup of PE, and that a normal heart rate should never rule out PE. And for the decision tools, we suggested starting with Wells. And if it's less than two, apply perk. If perk is negative, you're done. If Wells is two, three, or four, then consider a D dimer. Over four, get a CT. And be sure to age adjust your D dimer. We covered the years decision tool that uses two D dimer thresholds and agreed that it's very promising, but probably needs further validation and review. And finally, we discuss the value of chest X-ray, ECG, and POCUS in the workup of PE. So that was part one. In this part two, we discuss the nuances of CTPA, the promise of VQ SPECT. We talk about how to work up the challenging pregnant patient for PE, what to do when you get the radiology report that says there's a subsegmental PE, and how best to implement decision support for PE in your ED. Now before we dive in, we're getting closer and closer to the release of the EM Cases Quiz Vault, where you'll find hundreds of Q&As to help solidify your knowledge of the EM Cases main episode podcasts for free. So drop into the EM Cases website this fall to check it out. And there's a new offering on the EM Cases website, EMU 365. So what's EMU 365? That's the best talks in high-definition video from the legendary Emergency Medicine Update Conference all year round. So every couple of weeks, we'll release a hand-picked talk from the most recent EMU conference. We're talking the best talks from Amal Matu, Sarah Gray, Scott Weingart, Aaron CL, Walter Himmel. The, the list of world-class speakers goes on and on. So that's EMU365. Check it out on the EMK's website. We're hoping to have that up and running by the beginning of September. As far as upcoming conferences and courses go, there's just a handful of spots left for Podcast Camp, October 21st and 22nd in Toronto, for all you creative educators out there. That's the course that I run with our guest faculty, Hans Rosenberg from MRAP, where we guide you through medical education podcast production from beginning to end. Go to podcastcamp.org for all the details. And we'll be opening registration on September 19th at 10 a.m. EST for the fourth annual EM Cases course, which will be in February 2019. Uh, Last year it sold out in three days, so please register on time this year. We're super excited to offer a second day to the course dedicated entirely to simulation, so stay tuned for more details about that. We're gonna have George Kovacs guiding you through awake intubation. We'll have Rob Samard teaching slick cardiac arrest care integrating POCUS. Walter Himmel discussing state of the art GI bleed management. We'll get you up to speed on management of opioid misuse and oodles of more practice changing stuff. All right. Now on to PE challenges in diagnosis part two with Dr. DeWitt and Dr. Lang. I especially like the part on subsegmental PEs. Let's talk a little bit about CTPAs. We've talked about how little tiny filling defects can be called subsegmental PEs and that they may actually be nothing. On the other end of the spectrum, my understanding is that there are some patients with PE who actually have a normal CT. So where does this leave us with CTPA?
1: CT is the best diagnostic imaging technique that we have available to us. It's important to remember there's a very, very small false negative rate for pulmonary embolism with CT. And I think it just reinforces the idea that the Wells score or whatever pretest probability technique we use should be our stance throughout testing for pulmonary embolism. So anytime you get a test, you should be evaluating the results of that test in the context of your pretest probability. So somebody who's exceptionally high risk for pulmonary embolism will have a risk of around about 5% chance of being diagnosed with venous thromboembolism in the next three months. That doesn't mean to say that they necessarily definitely had a, a pulmonary embolism at that time, but it does suggest that CT isn't sufficient for everyone to be happy and you say to the patient, oh you're fine, you don't ever need to think about coming back to the emergency department again. So patients who have a high pretest probability even with a negative test stand a chance of actually having the disease process in their body and we just haven't picked it up.
2: Yeah that's a good point and uh, I think another consideration as well is that some of the PE diagnostic accuracy literature is fairly a dated. it's about 10 to 15 years old. And even then we saw very high performance characteristics, although limited by the fact that we didn't really have a gold criterion standard for many of that. And now as most centers are moving to high resolution, multi-slice, I think the likelihood of missing significant PE is very low.
0: Okay, so if anyone comes across a study that says that you can have a normal CT, Uh, in a patient with PE, just to know that that's very rare. um, And that probably with the newer CT scanners, that false negative rate is almost non-existent.
1: It's low, but if the patient has a high pretest probability, they do have a significant risk of having venous thromboembolism in their body.
2: I think what Kristen's saying is that um, you wouldn't be on the hook medical legally for someone coming back uh, a week later with a PE Um, who had a negative CT initially, because you didn't actually miss the PE. You just saw the natural evolution of disease.
0: Now, what about the clot burden seen on CT? So the question is, does the clot burden or the clot location found on CT predict clinical outcomes? Sometimes we get back that monster central PE that we think has a horrible prognosis And then we think, well, if it's a small PE and it's more peripheral, then it's probably a better prognosis. Does size matter? Does location matter? I think it's not nearly
2: as helpful as the clinical picture. So if a patient's, uh, you know, modeled or very tachycardic or very dyspneic or uh, having a borderline SATs, that's worth so much more than clot burden. Uh, You know, clot burden may reflect severity of disease, but it doesn't speak to the host's ability to manage or to deal with that problem. So, you know, uh, I, of course, I'm not sending home any saddle embolisms. But otherwise, I find it's not very helpful. It's, it doesn't change my management.
1: I completely agree. You're treating the patient and not the scan. And many of these patients have serious comorbidities, which put them at risk of death. And that small pulmonary embolism could be enough to increase their risk of death or um, conversely we have people who have very few symptoms with big proximal pulmonary embolism. I had a patient who had pulmonary embolism straddling both right and left pulmonary arteries and a week later he was back to jogging again. He was a runner and he told me this two or three months after the fact but he was very adamant that he felt fine. So disease will affect people in different ways.
0: What about VQ scan? You know, we used to use VQ a whole lot more. And, you know, I remember the days when we'd get a chest X-ray and if the chest X-ray was normal, then we'd go to VQ uh, because we we thought that it was pretty accurate in a patient who had a normal chest X-ray. And then if the chest X-ray was abnormal, we'd go to CT. Uh, and we were very particular about whether we would do a VQ or, or a CT. Is there any role in 2018 for VQ anymore?
1: Clearly, we feel that there's value in in younger patients because you reduce the radiation dose. And I I think that's a very reasonable approach to take to anybody who's young and healthy.
2: I agree. I think we also have to talk about VQ SPECT, which is the new generation of uh, nuclear medicine studies, which provides more of a 3D image and higher resolution for um, the, the patients undergoing suspected PE workup. Of course, it's also a renal f- sparing strategy, as well as an anaphylaxis, uh, anaphylactoid reaction sparing strategy that those are not risks that you would see with um, CTPE. So the way it's being done, at least Cal- in Calgary, is that VQ-spec reports are being, by Canadian standards at least, reported in a dichotomous way. So there's no more of this intermediate probability or clinical correlation. The nuclear medicine radiologists have to commit to either PE positive or PE negative. So I'm hearing from Kirsten before this recording started that uh, there's a lot of positivity coming in for uh, VQ uh, specs in in, in Ontario. I haven't had that much experience yet, but I sort of like the premise That, you know, for them to reach criteria for a positive VQ spec, they need at least one match defect. So if there's one where there's the ventilation and the perfusion correlating with PE, they can call it as a positive, or if there's more than one. But short of that, if there's only a a perfusion defect alone, that's insufficient to call it a positive test. So hopefully with VQ SPECT, for those patients who we really want to avoid radiation will be able to avoid the false positive problem?
1: There's actually a randomized controlled trial going on in France and Gregor Legal in Ottawa is applying to the CIHR at the moment uh, to get funding to run it in Canada. And that's a, an RCT which will randomize patients to either SPECT or CT. And I think that will be helpful because we don't have a lot of diagnostic research done on SPECT. Uh, there was lots and lots done with VQ scan, as you know, with Piped one, um, and that was when they developed the whole criteria for a categorization of the results. So it'll be really interesting to look at the incidence of palm rhabdism diagnosed with SPECT versus VQ to see is SPECT overcalling palm rhabdism, or actually does it seem to be the same as CT? Yeah, time will tell. So it's a
2: great point. Almost all of the literature we've been discussing is diagnostic accuracy literature, reporting sensitivity, specificity, predictive values. Some would argue that these are surrogate outcomes. Patients don't care if the test they're getting is this sensitive or that sensitive. What they care about is what's gonna happen to them. So studies that are powered And and our experimental designs that compare two diagnostic strategies are rare. Great to hear that Gregoire is uh, developing one. But I referred earlier to the pulmonary embolism diagnosis study, which was published in JAMA a few years back, which showed that for patients who come to the emergency department with suspected pulmonary embolism, their three-month risk of VTE is identical if they go along a VQ strategy or a CT strategy. So in terms of outcomes, in terms of the chances of missing a PE that will manifest over the next three months, the two approaches are identical.
0: All right, so VQ isn't dead yet. And we'll see with the SPECT studies what happens. I mean, certainly a VQ is a consideration in someone with a true severe anaphylaxis to IV dye. And it's certainly reasonable in your young patient's uh, with a normal chest x-ray who you're worried about PE, but you don't want to radiate them. I can't let too much out of the bag, but the American Society for Hematology just
2: submitted for publication a guideline on v- on PE diagnosis. And uh, there's a great analysis in there of when you would want to go more for a VQ route or a CTPE route.
0: All right. We've talked about age-adjusted D-dimer. What about the pregnant patient who you suspect might have a PE? I understand that uh, Jeff Klein has proposed trimester-adjusted D-dimer, where you have 750 cutoff for first trimester, 1,000 for second trimester, and 1,250 for third trimester. The American Thoracic Society recommends not using D-dimer at all in pregnant patients, There's another prospective study of about 300 pregnant and postpartum patients this year out of the UK called the DIPED study that showed a sensitivity of only 86%, but most of the patients received anticoagulation prior to drawing the D-dimer. So it's all very confusing and controversial. My understanding is that there's really no good evidence to guide us at all in working up pregnant patients with PE. What's your suggestion in terms of navigating the pregnant patient with a possible pulmonary embolism?
1: There is not enough research to support one particular strategy over another. Personally, I do use D-dimer to see if it's negative in a pregnant patient, but I don't adjust any levels. And um, if I'm worried, then I would start off with bilateral leg ultrasound, which is extremely low yield, but particularly if the patient has a swollen leg be helpful in avoiding chest imaging, and then I would order a ventilation perfusion scan.
0: Okay. You had mentioned that the radiation dose is less with a VQ than with a CT, but I understand that that's actually pretty controversial, that some people say that they're actually quite similar.
1: I I think the controversy is really centered on the fetal radiation, but in general we don't withhold x-rays that are, are necessary with pregnant women on the basis that the fetus could be exposed. Pregnant women do have hypertrophied breast tissue. They are at risk of radiation exposure to their breasts and subsequent breast cancer. So personally, I feel that the path of least risk is to order a ventilation perfusion scan.
0: Okay. Knowing that CTPA has a higher radiation risk for breast cancer for mum, but that VQ may actually have a higher risk to the fetus. Correct. So I, I agree with Kirsten's approach. Uh, D-dimer
2: helpful if negative, no specific adjusted thresholds. The, the ultrasound of the legs first because it's it's easy and safe, although very low yield. One thing I'll add though is that this is one where I'm definitely going to talk to the radiologist on call because there may be some subtleties to protocols to uh, radiation dosing, both for CT They may have a radiation-sparing strategy that they would invoke for this patient. So uh, this is a collaborative decision with diagnostic imaging and emergency if we're going in that direction.
0: All right. We'll have some proposed algorithms for working up pulmonary embolism in pregnant patients in the show notes. Suffice to say that it's controversial. We don't have any good evidence to guide us, although some people don't recommend a D-dimer. It's reasonable to order one, but only if it's negative under 500, it would be useful that it's reasonable to order compression ultrasound of the legs, even though it's low yield if you do find uh, deep vein thrombosis in the leg. Um, And when it comes to CT versus VQ, speak to your radiologist. It is controversial. CT has a higher radiation dose for breast tissue versus VQ has a higher radiation dose for fetus. And this is obviously going to incorporate shared decision-making with your patient. We talked about subsegmental PEs before. I want to get into actually whether to treat subsegmental PEs or not. So we've all had CTPA reports come back with subsegmental PEs. And you know I hate when this happens because I have no clue if it's actually significant or not. Maybe the radiologist was just being defensive and overcalling a tiny filling defect, or maybe there's actually a significant PE there. I have no idea. Now, a study from 2015 that reviewed charts of over 2,000 patients from your neck of the woods, Kirsten, uh, in Hamilton, Ontario, showed that whether or not you anticoagulated these subsegmental PEs, there was zero recurrent PEs, but about 5% of patients who were anticoagulated with subsegmental PEs developed life-threatening bleeding complications. And a very recent meta analysis of 14 studies in academic emergency medicine, again, there were no significant differences between anticoagulated patients and non anticoagulated patients in incidence of recurrent PE or DBT or death. And the incidence of bleeding in the anticoagulated group was 8%. So it's not so convincing that we should be anticoagulating these isolated subsegmental PEs. And, you know, if we look back on the incidence of diagnosed PE from the mid 90s to the mid 2000s, the incidence of PE doubled, yet the mortality remained about the same, suggesting that we're probably over diagnosing PE and maybe even over treating clinically benign cases, these subsegmental PEs. Now, the recent ASEP clinical policy on PE that just came out states, quote, Given the lack of evidence, Anticoagulation treatment decisions for patients with subsegmental PE without associated DVT should be guided by individual patient risk profiles and preferences. So, I don't know. I see a lot of patients still being anticoagulated with subsegmental PEs. It looks from to me from the data that it's actually more dangerous to be treating these patients because of the bleeding risk. Dr. DeWitt What's your take on whether or not we should be treating subsegmental PEs?
1: I think on the whole, getting to the point of diagnosing pulmonary embolism takes so much brain strain that I think it's probably unreasonable to expect emergency physicians to then make a decision as to whether they're going to treat that positive finding as positive or negative. As Eddie says, it could be four in the morning. You think that your diagnostic reasoning skills are, are great, or you think that your ability to weigh pros and cons is great, but then we've all been there the next day and we look back on that decision and we sort of groan. I definitely would advise that everybody's referred to somebody so that you make it someone else's problem. Um, from the perspective of should these patients be anticoagulated, well, yeah, there is always the option that if it's someone who's very healthy and someone who's low risk on the well score and has no reason to have pulmonary embolism, then it's always an option for us to perform bilateral leg ultrasounds. We don't anticoagulate them, we bring them back a week later, we repeat the bilateral leg ultrasounds, and if they're negative, then they could stay off anticoagulation. But I would say make that somebody else's responsibility. If they have risks for venous thrombosis, if you're concerned in any way, then I would probably advise against going down that route.
2: Although we are on the spot at the moment to
1: make a decision as to
2: whether at least initiate.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I would say everybody you should initiate on. And as you say, the, the risk of bleeding after one dose of anticoagulation is very low, even in patients who have a high risk of bleeding.
2: I think that's very fair, but I think we need to get together with our DI colleagues on this issue because I think this is an area where the way the CT is reported can make a huge difference. And I think it's either very reasonable to stop reporting subsegmentals because we don't know whether anticoagulation improves the outcome or how many of them are actually false positives. We have to think as well that there's a significant social burden on patients who now get this label of PE. It'll have insurance implications. They won't be able to travel as snowbirds anymore. So it's not a decision to be taken lightly. And I would love to see a day where a CT comes back as... Uh, You know, tiny little defect, but bottom line conclusion, no significant PEs noted.
1: I I feel it's possible in McMaster and Hamilton, we seldom see subsegmental pulmonary embolism diagnosed on CT, very seldom.
2: Same in Calgary.
0: I think the radiologists are shying away from calling these. Good for you guys. Yeah, in Toronto, I think there's still lots of subsegmental PEs being called, but we'll see how that evolves over time. It'd be a great
2: study to review the trends in subsegmental diagnoses over the last few years.
0: So suffice to say that despite the evidence that shows that subsegmental PEs don't do any better on anticoagulation... It's not unreasonable to start patients on anticoagulation because a couple of doses of anticoagulation have a very low bleeding risk. Just the important part is to make sure that they're followed up soon in a thrombosis clinic or a hematologist or an internist who can make the decision of whether they need to continue based on serial leg dopplers and the clinical picture.
1: And actually, that's the very patient that you can have that conversation about well, we don't really know if this is a blood clot or not, but we're erring on the side of caution because that will really help your specialist. It'll set them up so that if they stop the anticoagulant, the patient feels well, actually, they warned me that that might happen, so that's okay.
0: So now that we have an idea of how complicated pretest probability, D dimer, diagnostic tools, and imaging issues around PE can get, it begs the question. Is there a role for things like clinical decision support, educational interventions, performance and feedback reports and institutional policy to help us in our decision making?
1: It's a hundred percent important that you cannot use these rules. you cannot implement across the board a, a strategy for diagnosing palm embolism without adequate infrastructure.
2: I agree completely, but it's a very tough nut to crack. Uh, Physicians are tied up in a kind of a workflow that makes intervention at that level difficult. So we're uh, reporting uh, this cluster randomized trial, which we thought, man, you know, we're putting the decision support right there. We're putting in PERC combined with WELL so that every time a physician orders a CT, they'll be informed by these probability assessments and make much better choices zero impact on CT ordering or uh, diagnostic yield, unfortunately. And it's multifactorial why this happened. Partly, I believe it's that we embedded the decision support at the point where the decision was already made to go ahead and get the CT. So it's hard to turn people around at that point when they've already got that idea committed in their heads. But I think we do need to have a system where physicians are more accountable or can see better how they're doing in comparison to their peers. So one of the new next stages of of this work is for people who are high performers, i.e. they use minimal amounts of CT chest and they have high diagnostic yield, they will be sitting down with uh, the average and the low performers to share their tips and tricks as to how they manage to keep a PE diagnosis rate of 25% and only order CTs on 5 or 10% of their eligible patients.
1: I think you made a very important point, which is you have to set the entire departmental expectations before you embark on something like this. So physicians need to know that they are expected to use this and the tools should be available to them at the time that they think of testing for pulmonary embolism. Because as soon as an emergency physician has made up a pathway They don't want to change that.
0: All right, we had touched on shared decision making and communicating risk with patients. There was a paper published in April of this year entitled Improving Perceptions of Empathy in Patients Undergoing Low Yield CT Imaging in the ED, and another from last year entitled Impact of patient affect on physician estimate of probability of serious illness and test ordering. Dr. Lang, how should we go about shared decision making knowing that this is a very complicated issue even for physicians to sort out how the diagnostic workup should go and whether patients should be anticoagulated or not and whether they should get a CT or a VQ if they're pregnant, etc. How should we go about shared decision making? in the ED with patients who are working up for PE? So I don't think we know exactly how to do
2: this yet. Um, We've seen some nicer models on the uh, chest pain and aside, because there we're looking at scenarios in the U.S. where patients are admitted at a very high rate. You know, patients don't come to the emergency department generally asking for a CT. So in that case, I don't know really if there's that much of a role to be discussing in detail whether patients should or should not have a CT. I think it's highly relevant to the subsegmental PE and how they're going to be treated. Uh, There, I think there's a real fork in the road where patients' values and preferences may influence the decision-making process. I mean, in general terms, I think there's been some studies to show that, you know, if we can get your risk of PE down to a certain percentage, are you happy with us stopping there and not going on to more advanced, potentially harmful studies? And I think the culture in Canada is that patients are generally happy with that kind of discussion. Uh, I don't think they need any kind of a complex tool to decide if they're in the emergency department for chest pain and shortness of breath, whether they need to go on to CT. So I I think there could be some role there, but it's not screaming out at me as a big area for potential.
1: Yeah. uh, Part of my research has involved interviewing patients who are being tested for pulmonary embolism. And that's a whole fascinating area in itself. And actually back in November, Eddie and I talked about an idea that I had, which was just that I was toying with the idea of shared decision-making around CT scanning, but only in the the patient group who were very, very unlikely to have pulmonary embolism. But I've actually backed off on that idea because having talked it through with my thrombosis colleagues and Eddie and a few more people, and then thinking about it, it, particularly in the context of patients I've been testing for pulmonary embolism, It's really impossible for a patient to understand what a diagnosis of pulmonary embolism could mean or a missed diagnosis. I think we're asking too much of them. I don't think even with the best will in the world, we'd be able to educate them sufficiently so they could make that adequate judgment call. So I think what I've moved towards now is is less shared decision making and more shared information so possibly setting expectations, maybe at the time that you do the order for D-dimer, maybe the patient is then given a whole bunch of information about what, what is D-dimer, what is pretest probability, why do we think you are pretest test probability, um, why do we not always need to do a CT scan. I think that would be more useful for some patients than actually saying to them, what do you want?
2: This is very different than minor head injury where people actually come to the emergency department with the expectation are you going to get are, am I going to get my CT. So it's rarely the case for pulmonary embolism and I think you're right there's just too many barriers to really have an informed partner on the decision making process.
0: All right. To wrap it up one last question. What do you think the future of pulmonary embolism research is going to be in five years, 10 years, 15 years? What do you think is going to change based on the research that's going to be happening over the next few years?
1: I would very much like to see us starting emergency physician-driven research on how we test for PE. We got into this mess because the well score was derived by a thrombosis physician. When I speak to my thrombosis colleagues, they have little understanding of the pressures and the expectations we have imposed on us in the emergency department. They just don't understand how it works. So the emergency department is a special place and a test will only be used if it's easy to use and fits into the infrastructure of the emergency department and the emergency department settings. So I would love to see in quotes, better tests. And I don't mean tests that are better at ruling out pulmonary embolism because we may not find anything better than Wells and D-dimer or or PERK, But I mean tests which can be used very easily and can be interpreted in a very simple way and which will entice physicians to use the test.
0: And we need special people like you who are both emergency trained and thrombosis experts to help bridge that gap?
2: I think the future in, in emergency research will be more along the health services line of, uh, of inquiry. I think more and more, maybe this is a top-down pressure, but the need to be accountable for the things we do will be driving a couple of things And that will include uh, more use of uh, electronic audit and feedback to physicians on their practicing patterns. And I think we'll also maybe see a day when uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning will develop so that radiologists can't really do a CTPE study unless certain criteria are met. So, you know, there's always going to be an escape clause for that. But I think a much more sophisticated way of ensuring that patients who are going for CT meet criteria is
0: maybe what we're going to see in the future. Just before we signed off, I thought it'd be nice to bring back the quote of the month, which we haven't done for a couple of years. This one's another one from William Osler, a classic one. Medicine is a science of uncertainty and an art of probability. Thank you so much for your insights, Dr. Lang, Dr. DeWitt. It was really quite eye-opening for me to discuss all the ins and outs of working a patient with pulmonary embolism. Obviously it's not so simple, but it's my hope from our discussion that people out there have a better idea of how to work up pulmonary embolism, which will hopefully result in a more rational approach to working these patients up where we're not scanning everyone with a chest, but that we're still picking up the clinically important pulmonary emboli out there. Thanks for great questions, Anton.
1: Yeah, thanks, Anton. It's been a pleasure.